Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. As you know, I really love exploring the edges of how we relate, the spaces where we're experiencing friction or a lack of liberation, where we're not free, where that relationship that we have actually requires that we don't share our truth or a voice, or that drink we're having is actually treating a feeling. So are we really in choice, or are we using that thing to avoid a feeling that would actually liberate us into making a certain choice? And this is why I explore it in every aspect in everything we're in relationship with can inform us, especially if there is friction or what feels like a lack of choice, which would ultimately feel like what an addiction is too. And I've been fascinated by my own relationship with my body and exercise and how, how being fit and then not being fit, how those things really informed in a lot of ways how I felt about myself and the challenges of eating a certain way versus not or avoiding certain foods versus not like there's something so much more challenging going on than literally just a logical choice of choose this food and you'll feel better or choose this one and you'll feel worse but you'll feel better in a way right and if it was just easy, we'd all choose the broccoli over the pizza, but there's something about it. And it's, and again, even exploring this idea that it has to be either or restriction or what is considered not. And I've always been really inspired and fascinated by the guest today's journey because he did that. He went through these different steps of being, and his brand is called Fit to Fat to Fit. And I've been following him for a while now and just really inspired by the messages he delivers, his conversations about vulnerability. And I really wanted to have him on the podcast to explore his journey through uh, religion and fitness and all of these things, how our identities crumble and, uh, and what can be born from that. You know, all the juicy shit that we need to discover in the stuff that we're normally afraid of confronting. So with all that said, I'm pumped to share this conversation with you today. As you know, wherever you listen to this podcast, one way you can support it, please subscribe to it so you don't miss any episodes. Share it if 
you know, it feels like something that resonated with you and you think might help other people. And one way that you can really support it is by leaving a five-star review or a written review. Uh, that is so, so helpful because it helps get in into more people's ears and move up the old algorithm, the sort of game we got to play. So I appreciate you and your support. And without further ado, here's Drew Manning. Drew Manning, welcome to the podcast, my friend. So happy to finally be connected. Likewise, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. You know, I, I, uh, and for those of you listening, Drew is an author and he's also the creator of Fit to Fat to Fit. And so, I, you know, following your work, I, I really wanted to get at the core of what drove it, this journey from fitness to, to put, you know, putting on weight and then getting fit again. And I think in a lot, there was an envy of like, how did he just do that? He gets to choose, you know? Uh, and so I wanted to understand what was the psychological motivations or, or soul-based motivations that made you want to learn um, what you learned in that space. And I also really want to know what you learned in that space. So where does it all begin, Drew? Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, a little bit of my background, which ties into this, I grew up in a family of 11 brothers and sisters and we all, yeah, 11. I don't know how my parents did it, man. Like I have two and it's, it's hard, right? It's really, they did it a lot. That's, (laughs) (laughs) that's always hard when it's someone else's parent, you know, it's like, sorry, sorry about that. That's okay. Now, 11 kids. So I was number seven out of 11, but we all played sports. So I played football, I wrestled. So I was always very active. And because of that, I was always naturally fit. And then fast forward to 2009, I became certified as a trainer. And so here I was someone who had never been overweight a day in my life, trying to help people who had been overweight pretty much the majority of their life. And I couldn't understand why it was so hard for them just to do what I do, which was easy for me, which was eat healthy food and exercise. And my clients would struggle to stay consistent. And so I had one client who was my brother-in-law at the time tell me, you know, Drew, you don't understand what it's like for me or for people like me, because for you, it's always been easy. And I was like, you're right. I I don't understand why it's so hard. Like, why can't you just do it? You just put down the junk food, you go to the gym. So I was like your typical judgmental kind of trainer that existed. And this idea popped up in my head, like, maybe there's something I'm missing here. Maybe there's something I need to learn. And so I was thinking of ideas and for whatever reason, Mark, this idea of getting fat on purpose, as crazy as that sounds, it kind of made sense in my mind. This light bulb went off. Like, what if you actually did this, documented it and, and showed people and maybe it would be a motivating thing, right? And so this is back in 2011. And I, the idea that I created was called Fit to Fat to Fit, where for six months, I would stop exercising. I would eat a standard American diet, which is full of this processed shit that we have here in America. You know, all the good stuff, cinnamon toast crunch and mountain dew. Oh, good cinnamon toast. <laughs> it's so good, right? Um, and so I ate that food for six months, gained 75 pounds of pure fat. 75 pounds. Yeah, 75 pounds. It was it was a lot of weight. And it was wow. one of the most it was one of the hardest, most humbling things I've done because I went into it thinking it would be easy, but then putting on the weight was very humbling. Um, and we're talking a little bit about this before we jumped on the podcast of I had an identity crisis during the middle of this because in my mind, I was Drew the fit guy in my whole life and being overweight for the first time was very uncomfortable. Like I wanted to go up to strangers out on the street and explain to them like, Hey, this isn't really my body. This isn't what I look like. This is just an experiment. Go to this website. Uh, So I kind of freaked out. And, um, but 
I learned so many valuable lessons during that first experiment. And that first experiment did go viral, went on a bunch of TV shows and, you know, wrote a book and all that stuff. So, you know, the idea behind it was I truly wanted to gain a better understanding of what it was like to be overweight for the first time so that I could better in turn help my clients who struggled with, you know, losing weight. And I guess the biggest thing that I learned, Mark, was how much of transformation is mental and emotional. Like I come from the fitness industry where it's about macros and calories and exercise programs and supplements and how to lose weight. Um, But the biggest thing that the industry is missing is helping people overcome those mental and emotional challenges that have been keeping them back their entire life. And it wasn't until I did fit to fat to fit the first time in 2011, where I finally started to realize, Oh, there's more to weight loss than just eating less and working out. And that's where the wheel started turning as this whole fit to fat to fit movement was kind of created. Yeah. The emotion that must, I just imagine like, when you were saying I wanted to tell people to go to this website so they would understand why I looked the way I look, sort of in quotes, um, and and the dissolution of your identity that had to occur in because without actually putting on the weight, you wouldn't have recognized how much your worth lived in your current, uh, your previous, I guess, iteration of your body. When you look back at your childhood and and growing up what other sort of identities did you see melt away or, or was this like, actually, you know, the, were these more layers that had come off? And I don't even mean that as a pun, but were these like more layers that disintegrated that you were learning? It's almost like you were being revealed. I think of like when they asked, um, who is it who uh, created the statue of David? Is it Michelangelo? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't want to say. Yes yeah, and- yeah. Anyways, people know, and if they know, <laughs> that's awesome. Either way, I remember someone talking about like, "How did you come up with it?" And he said, "I just revealed it. It always existed." Yeah. And yeah. I think of that same truth about our own expression. You know, that we like remove the masks, the the constructs. So, you know, in your journey, did that really was that sort of the final thing that cracked you open or, or, you know, maybe you can offer some more insight into that. That's a good question. I'm going to say that was the final thing. I would say that was the first thing that cracked me open to, you know, seeing myself uh, becoming more self-aware of, of seeing myself uh, through kind of more of an observer lens and Uh, realizing that I am not my body, that there's more to me than my body. My body can change. But growing up, I was drew the fit guy. I was drew the Mormon guy. I was, drew the nice guy, you know, all these labels that I've put on myself. But if you go back to, you know, when you're a child, you don't know your, your body, you don't attach right. your body image at, to your self image until later on, when maybe someone teases you about your body or makes fun of something about you, maybe it's your weight, or maybe it's the way you look or something like that. And you, you realize like, Oh, you start to become aware that, Oh, people see me as this, this, this physical form, this, this, this body that I have. And I think, for me, it's, it's almost about unlearning, right? Getting back to the original state of being, you know, as a child where you're, you, you don't really attach identity to the physical form, but at some point you do, and then you kind of get stuck in that for years and decades, because that's just kind of what society does and teaches you to do. So this is kind of, kind of the first unraveling for me where I'm like, oh, th- there's more to me than my body. And, you know, it helped me see other people that they are more than their bodies as well. And then that's where the empathy started to, you know, come into play where this first experiment of fit to fat to fit, I gained so much empathy for those that struggle because I realized it's not as simple as just eating less and working out. It's way more of a mental, emotional, emotional 
you know, um, challenge that they have to overcome to eventually lose the weight. Yes, there's a physical aspect to it. But I think this is where, you know, the empathy, is, which is what my brand talks a lot about. And I'm on this mission to bring more empathy to the fitness industry, which is an industry that lacks empathy. And so anyways, that's kind of where that was first started. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, that, that was kind of like where this awakening started, I guess you could say. Yeah, no, that does. And I, I'm curious what further awakenings you've had, because mm-hmm. when you think about the the lack of emotionality or uh, as you're saying, empathy to people who I think of the book uh, free will by Sam Harris, where he talks about how if we traded cell for cell experience for experience with anybody on the world, we'd make the exact decisions they make. And um, I think when we look into the lens of any sort of addiction or challenging relationship with anything underneath it is usually some sort of pain or disassociation or disconnection. And I know for myself, whenever I'd put on weight, it was due to self-soothing due to eating something. And that made me feel good, which is not carrots or celery or broccoli. It's usually, you know, salt and vinegar chips or like uh, chocolate or candy, you know, things that give you this temporary, almost like a uh, anesthesia to actually feeling everything. And what emotions did you find were the ones that, cause you said it's more of an emotional journey. What emotions do, did you find you really struggled with it that gave you insight in order to see, yeah. your, you know, see the, through the lens of people you help. Well, you kind of mentioned it, the emotional connection to food for me, I couldn't understand why everyone just didn't have the willpower to be disciplined <laughs> to, right let go of the junk food and not eat it. Right. Until I, I lived it for six months. And I'm not trying to say me doing this gave me the exact insight that someone who's overweight and struggled with their weight their whole life has, but it gave me a glimpse into just how hard it is and how powerful emotional eating is where even for me as a trainer, I had to admit to myself and my followers that were following this journey, this is way harder than we think it is. And it's way more powerful than we can ever imagine because it's like, it's like telling a drug addict, like, Hey, just stop doing drugs. Just quit heroin. Yeah. Just stop it. And then all your problems go away. It's a very similar thing. And and you described it perfectly. You know, we try and escape the pains, the emotional pains of life through all kinds of substances, whether it's food or drugs or alcohol or sex or porn or, um, you know, social media or lots of things that numb the pain rarely. And, you know, we as humans, like that's how kind of we navigate this world. And now in the world we live in, there's so many things to, to go after substances to numb that pain. And so it gave me some insight into just how emotional eating works and why so many people struggle with emotional eating, which is why so many people struggle with weight loss, because if it were easy, everyone would be able to just, you know, control their hunger and control their emotions. And then they would never eat junk food and they would never be overweight. But it's, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's such an emotional journey to go on a physical weight loss journey that people don't really factor that part in because they think, okay, if I do this diet for 30 days, I'm going to lose this weight, then I'll get this body. And then once I have this body, then I'll love myself. Then people will love me. And then all my problems will go away. And that's kind of what people see physical fitness as, as a means to an end to be happy. And they're put placing their happiness or their value on one day. Once I get this body, then I will be happy with myself. And unfortunately that's, that's not how it works. And, you know, I know people with 5% body fat that still hate themselves and still struggle with self-love and self-worth. 
So it doesn't fix it. People are chasing after it as if it does. And then, then if they don't achieve that, then they think something's wrong with them. Then they start to feel the shame of like something like, uh, you know, I am broken uh, or I am less than because society places so much value on looking a certain way. And if I don't look that way, then society doesn't love me. And therefore I am not worthy of love or I'm unlovable, which is a story that people create. And so it's, re- it's, re- it's really hard to <laughs> help people through a weight loss journey Um you know, because we want it to be simple. We want it to be black and white. Like, Hey, what's the pill I take? How many calories do I eat? What's the work got to do? Right. And if I do these things. I'll get this body. And so, so for me, the first fit to fit to fit experiment in 2011, really opened up my eyes to how powerful emotional eating is and the emotional connection to food. And then once I better understood that I could better help people through that, that journey to build that self-awareness so that they're more aware of their addictions and their triggers so that when in those moments, when those things happen, giving them some tools and practical tools to be able to more thoughtfully respond instead of just react like they've been, they've programmed their brain yeah. to do, which takes time to learn how to, to do that. Yeah, agreed. So right before I sat down to get some work done this afternoon, I experienced that classic afternoon crash. You know, my energy was dropping and I could feel that my brain was sort of like, "Eh, are we going to do this? And I don't drink caffeine very often anymore. I don't want to be dependent on it. I might have a coffee once a week. And the reason is I don't want to have to be like, oh, I need a coffee to get through this afternoon. I felt like that was just another form of addiction. And I like my body and my mind to be free from the necessity of things in order to show up and perform. And so one thing that I've done in order to replace coffee and still get energy and also nutrition is I've been taking Organifi Red Juice. It's got 13 superfoods. It's fully organic. It's got no caffeine, just two grams of sugar that come from freeze-dried berries. And so not only does it provide me with energy, but it's actually super delicious and super easy to make. You just... In 30 seconds, you just open it up, mix it with some water, and drink it down. And as I said, it tastes so great. So if you want to save 20% off red juice, this sounds like it'd be a good fit for you if you're trying to kick coffee or whatever. Check it out. Go to Organifi.com slash create the love. And that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash create the love. Go check it out. You save 20% on all the good stuff. in the the space that lives between the feeling and then the reaching out for whatever the thing is that soothes it, we need to attend to things. And I think it's the attending to that. I, I often think about it as like, that's where the adult has to show up. Cause of course the kids like give me the candy kids will chase a van with a stranger. That's why we have to tell them not to do that, you know, because we are so easily allured by what feels good in the moment. And yeah all the things that one discovers, you know, I was reading the other day, you probably know the stats better than me, but I was just reading the other day that something like more than 70, I think it was 76% of the United States. And I'm sure the data is similar or maybe close to for Canada uh, have a BMI of above 25, I think it was. And granted, I know BMI can be not always an effective measurement, but it at least gives us a pretty good window into how much metabolic health is how many people suffer from metabolic health issues and how pertinent that actually is to uh, experiences like COVID and, and just in general inflammatory states and also people who are susceptible uh, from an immune space and, and how important this actually is. And when I look at that 76%, 
immediately what I thought was, cause I was, you know, chubby from like grade five to grade eight and the feelings that I had of that, that like no one really, this was, you know, my internal uh, process is that no one really cared about me. Mm. Uh, and then when I got fit, all of a sudden people wanted to talk to me and I got all this attention. And I thought to myself, like, as a kid, you can't really process it. But I remember feeling like I'm still the same person that I was before summer. And now I came back thinner and, and quote unquote, more attractive. And now people want to talk to me. So it became this addiction that I had. I played lots of sports too. So I could at that point still be self-soothing and not be affected by it. But when I, my, my challenge came with that getting affirmation or love or being chosen because I appeared a certain way, I could never lose it. Like I was obsessed with keeping it because I was afraid then on definitely on an unconscious level. And it became conscious that people wouldn't love me anymore. And I think about how social media didn't exist then. I couldn't even imagine the hooks that social media have for bodies, especially for fitness people, especially, you know, I think whether you're men or women, I think women tend to be, uh, really celebrated for their body. Not that men aren't. Um, but I think it's, we have definitely, you know, I had a psychologist on here who talked about how by the age of like 10 women are being praised for what their body looks like. And boys are being praised for what their body can do. Yeah. And you can't, you can change somewhat what your body can do, but it's pretty hard to change what it looks like. And, yeah. and so I, you know, we're sort of in an epidemic where we need to understand the level of trauma that contributes to the level of obesity because yes. really i think that's what's underneath it all and that's exactly why i'm trying to tell people the importance of having empathy in this industry that is so focused on body image because it's so quick people are so quick to judge especially on social media nowadays or to look at someone and be like oh you're you're overweight therefore you're this this and this and you put all those labels on that person but you don't know the traumas that they've been through and experiences that they've had that have created this um, you know, the, where they're at in their life. And that's why I really love the book by Oprah. Uh, you know, what, what happened to you? Um, I think that's what it's called. Yeah. What happened to you instead of what's wrong with you asking what happened mm. to you, what caused you to get to this point in your life? What like, a what beautiful was, reframe. Yeah. And so it, 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 instead of like looking at people as like, what's wrong with you, like saying what happened to you and being genuinely curious. And this is why I, I want other trainers, leaders in this industry and, and other industries to come from a place of empathy first and foremost, because I truly believe no one cares how much, you know, you could have all the credentials and all the knowledge uh, of how to manipulate someone's body composition. That's cool, but no one cares how much, you know, until they know how much you care. And I feel like if we as leaders, coaches, trainers in this industry could come from a place of empathy first and foremost, it creates a safe space where that person doesn't feel judged or they don't feel less than because of the way their body looks. And it's not about getting their body to a certain point where it's like, Hey, you need to be, you know, 10% body fat in order to be accepted by society. And if not, then you're going to get made fun of, or you're going to be, you know, value or, or, you know, looked at as less than. And my hope is that there, there can be some change. There is room for, for people to learn how to develop empathy as a leader in this industry. I think that's where we can really make a difference so that people feel understood when they're understood, they're more willing to do the work that's required to live a healthy lifestyle, but not making it about the results. That's the other thing too. I want to say, Mark is like, we're so obsessed with the results. Like I want to lose 20 pounds by this day. And if I reach that goal, then I'm successful. If I don't reach that goal, then I'm a failure. 
And that kind of uh, mindset is what breaks a lot of people. And people just go through the rat race of like, I'm going to do this diet. I'm going to do that diet. I'm going to take this pill. I'm going to take that pill. I'm going to do this to get, you know, we're so obsessed with that. And I think the work that you do is so great because, um, you know, helping people come from a place of self-love versus self-hate is so powerful because I feel like in the fitness industry, what that looks like, if you come from a place of self-love versus hating yourself to skinny, then you don't look at the process of exercising and eating healthy food as a chore. You look at it as I'm, I'm giving myself love because yes, in the temporary setting, junk food is going to taste better than broccoli. But in the long run, that broccoli, the vegetables are going to give you more benefits. You're going to feel better in the long run. Same thing with exercise. In the short term, exercise sucks. You're sweating. You're breathing heavy. It's hard. Um, yeah. If you've not done it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in the long run, I feel like it's going gonna, it's gonna to help you feel better. And then when you truly love yourself, you want to feel good physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And then you don't look at the process as this thing you have to do in order to get these results. And those results will eventually make me happy. Now you're coming from a place of self-love where you're like, Oh, I'm going to do the process because I love myself and it feels good to treat myself this way. It doesn't mean you can't ever, you know, love yourself with junk food or love yourself with wine or whatever it is every now and then, but it's just a different balance and it's a different mindset, different perception of what success looks like in this industry. Yeah. It's almost like instead of visiting a space of self-love, you live there and, and it becomes a stasis rather than um, something that's like a holiday, you know, yes. and the holiday becomes the chips and the, whatever it might be, yeah, the, the way that, you know, I, I think about what it would be required, you know, what would be required, you know, I, I, I recognize the mindset because mm-hmm. I think when I was younger, I definitely had it in this sort of simplistic binary perspective that you just put down the junk food and you pick up the thing or you start working out. What I love about working out and eating differently or, yeah. or more nutritionally is that because whenever I, you know, I have this program called Rediscover Your Wholeness. And in Rediscover Your Wholeness, the whole idea is that you look at this holistic perspective of your life and you look at what beliefs have been created from the experiences you've had in your life. And then you focus on actually changing those core beliefs for the next month. So you really build a month that's Mm -hmm. around showing up as, as if you do love yourself. Yes. And of course that involves understanding where did the beliefs come from? It doesn't have to, but that's helpful. But one of the aspects of it is I partnered with this good friend of mine, Julie Walton, and she teaches the nutritional aspect. And then there's exercise recommendations. And I really think those are actually the two most core parts, because if I tell someone, oh, like if you set a boundary that has this this synergistic relationship with self-worth, like if I set a boundary, I say, I love me. And, and when, and it also feeds my self-worth. So it says it to me and then it feeds it. But there's a moment where I've never laid a boundary where I have to start with, let's call it nothing. Mm -hmm. And just take this giant leap of hope, much like not reaching for the food, not whatever it is. And, and it, and it just starts this feedback loop and it takes a, a bit, like a couple of weeks for sure to see how your consciousness or your awareness of your behaviors is starting to shift how you feel. Right. But yeah. with food, it could be a day or two, you might get the sugar crash or the whatever, but yeah. if you start moving your body and you start eating differently, you are sending the message that you care and you, and you keeping your word and all those things. 
and you are actually going to feel better. Yeah. Pretty much immediately, you're going to start to feel this sort of positive feedback loop that, I mean, I think about running stairs. I have this weird relationship with running stairs. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love running stairs. I love weird. doing really hard kettlebell work. That's cool. What's that? I said, that is weird. Yeah, it's weird though, but I like love it. So right before I sat down to get some work done this afternoon, I experienced that classic afternoon crash. You know, my energy was dropping and I could feel that my brain was sort of like, eh, are we going to do this? And I don't drink caffeine very often anymore. I don't want to be dependent on it. I might have a coffee once a week. And the reason is I don't want to have to be like, oh, I need a coffee to get through this afternoon. I felt like that was just another form of addiction. And I like my body and my mind to be free from the necessity of things in order to show up and perform. And so one thing that I've done in order to replace coffee and still get energy and also nutrition is I've been taking Organifi Red Juice. It's got 13 superfoods. It's fully organic. It's got no caffeine, just two grams of sugar that come from freeze-dried berries. And so not only does it provide me with energy, but it's actually super delicious and super easy to make. You just, in 30 seconds, you just open it up, mix it with some water and drink it down. And as I said, it tastes so great. So if you want to save 20% off red juice, this sounds like it'd be a good fit for you if you're trying to kick coffee or whatever, check it out. Go to Organifi.com slash create the love. And that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash create the love. Go check it out. You save 20% on all the good stuff. Yeah, it's and there's almost like I just get so excited about what my body can do. And I just had, you know, about three weeks a month off because I had COVID. And then I just, it wasn't too bad, my COVID, my COVID. Sounds like I I had my own variant. But yeah, it wasn't too bad. Um, But I just hadn't, I didn't want to damage my lungs or anything, just exercising and, you know, travel and whatever. And the first workout I did after, taking about three weeks off, I was like, oh my gosh, this goes away fast, which yeah. means it can come back fast. Yeah. So yeah, like when I consider all of that, the simplicity, like when you're working with clients or groups, yeah. do you start like, I guess I even think about your fit to fat to fit. So you've done it twice. Yeah. So I did it once in 2011 and another time just last year, 2020, I did it as a 40 year old. So again, just recently. Well, and how much weight did you put on? 75 pounds the first time. And then the second time, 62 pounds, um, just because the, t- the amount of time I did it for was different. I did six months of gaining the first time. And then this time I did it four months of gaining. Wow. So I'm curious, because uh, I guess my question is, what do you notice as the immediate benefits for people? Or what do they say when they begin this sort of journey from a more empathic space? Yeah. And then my follow-up after that, if we can remember, is um, what did it feel like for your body? And did you also do your blood chemistry as you know? Oh, man, I can't wait to hear that. So let's start with the first one. What emotions do you notice or or what feedback do you start to see for people and and how that contributes to the journey? Yeah. So ever since I did the first experiment and, and even just like, you know, as I evolved as my my own version of myself and as a human, you know, I was able to help people more so on the mental and emotional side than the physical side. The physical side is always going to be there. The exercise, the, you know, that's going to be a part of it. But what I do with my clients now to help them develop that, that 
that mindset that is so important is I have them do a few things that have nothing to do with weight loss. And you, this might, you might be, you might do something similar in your programs, but like there's a prep week where I have them do things like make their bed every single morning. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's actually part of ours is about yeah. keeping your word. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. yeah and it's something that they're not going to lose any weight. They're not going to get a six pack for making their bed, but it's just something small. And what it does <laughs> is it tricks the brain into, you know, being consistent with one small thing and it's a win to start off your day. And then from there we have things like, you know, meditation, uh, positive affirmations, gratitude list, uh, taking a cold shower and all of these things do from what I found, what it does is it helps train the brain to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations. And yes. when it comes to any kind of transformation, physical transformation, spiritual transformation, you have to learn how to become comfortable in uncomfortable situations so you can actually see progress and see the results that you're looking for. And, but the problem is people just jump into this on January 1st saying, I'm gonna, never going to touch sugar. I'm going to work out every day and get lean and mean, like that's cool, but they don't really do the mindset work, the inner work first. Amen. And this is exactly why I have people do these things that have nothing to do with weight loss. It's just training the brain to become comfortable in these uncomfortable situations. And then if they can do those things, then when it comes to meal prepping and actually doing the physical exercise that's required, those things are, are big asks for a lot of people. And some people try to go from zero to hundred and do all that right off the bat without training their mind. And then that's why people fall off after two weeks or three weeks, because it come, becomes too uncomfortable for them and their mind isn't resilient yet because we live in a world of comfort. I mean, we really do. Everything is made for our comfort so that we never have to be uncomfortable. <laughs> so you kind of have to force yourself yeah. to get uncomfortable, whether it's a cold shower, which sucks, of course, especially probably in, up in Canada where it's freezing cold in the wintertime, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but if you can get in the shower for 60 seconds with cold water, learn to slow your heart rate down, slow your breathing down and let your body and your mind know that, Hey, we're okay. We're not going to die. This is, this is a hard thing, but we can do these hard things. And then when it comes to that workout that day, you're like, Oh yeah, my muscles are burning. You know, I'm breathing heavy, but we got this, we can do these hard things. And then the mind becomes more resilient. And then they, you know, um, you know, doing those harder physical things with the physical transformation becomes easier if they do the, the inner work first, the, on the mental and emotional side. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. It's, so, it's interesting. We also do the cold shower, like cold water exposure. I have a cold plunge and that honestly has been one of the most transformative experiences of my life to be able to observe my body being like, you're going to die and being able to say, I'm so safe. Yeah. And, and then being able to delineate when that's true versus when it's not yes. like a more of a trauma response uh, relationally is so easy because it's, we get reactive when reactivity is actually, it's protecting us, but it's not serving us, you know, it's serving us in some way, but not maybe for the relationship we're trying to create now. I love all of those yeah. uh, micro interventions that really, they're not a lot of to ask, um, yeah. but they provide really massive transformations. Exactly. And then, then we eventually get into the, the workouts and then we get into the meal prep and all the stuff they know that, that they're, they're going to have to do that's required of this, but at least they're these kinds of things really make a huge impact. And you probably see that as well. Um, so that, I think that answers your first question. The second question, remind me again, just so I answer is it. yeah, your blood chemistry. So yeah. as f uh, blood chemistry and the correlation you noticed with your energy levels and yeah. you weren't even allowing yourself to work out. Right. Yeah. 
Um, oh, that must so have killed you. That must have killed you. <laughs> it, it did the first time around. The first time when I first did this, I was more obsessed with my body image. I was, yeah, because like I said, I defined myself by my body image. And then once I went through that, you know, identity crisis during the first experiment, the second time around when I did it last year as a 40 year old, like, honestly, dude, I could care less about being overweight. I took my shirt off. I went to Hawaii, went to the beach. The first time around, I was so self-conscious. I did not take my shirt off. I was married at the time. And, you know, uh, I remember you know, turning the lights off, being intimate because I didn't want her to see me naked. I, you know, I didn't want to see myself naked. Um, uh, but, but yeah. I, as I did the inner work and, and realized that like, you know, my body is temporary and, you know, I'll probably eventually get back to fit. I didn't care that much about it. But, um, the interesting thing that I learned from the first experiment was when I went from six months of eating cinnamon toast crunch and SpaghettiOs and hot pockets and top ramen to then trying to eat healthy food. Here's the interesting thing that I learned, Mark is my body went through this crazy withdrawal period where I felt like crap for about two weeks straight. And what came, the thing that came to me was, this is what my clients tell me when I give them a meal plan say, Hey, follow this, be perfect at it, be consistent with it. And they would struggle because they would be like, Oh man, I just, you know, I had to have a soda this weekend or went out with some friends and had to have pizza. And And before I was like, why don't you just be disciplined? Like, why can't you do it? And then this light bulb went off when I transitioned from eating that junk food for six months to then eating healthy food. The food did not taste nearly as good as I remember it. I did not feel good right away. The first two weeks, I felt like hell. I had headaches. I was grumpy. I was moody. And um, it just kind of showed me how powerful like food can be this drug where our body is so accustomed to these processed foods that we have a huge abundance of and you know, living in a first world country to then having real whole food. Yeah, you don't feel great like the like the immediately like we think we are you know you don't like aren't going to lose that weight like the first week like you're you think you you're going to lose twenty pounds the first week it just doesn't happen that way it, it it takes time and it really like I said helped me have empathy for those that struggle with trying to be consistent because if you've been eating junk food you know processed food for decades <laughs> and then you try and eat real food your body is like, what is this? Like, we want our drug. Where's our drug at? Like we yeah. want the high that it's had the past six months. And so I realized the power of, of food after that first experiment. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the blood work stuff, that was really interesting because your body is very resilient, but it, it showed me in those six months, how quickly your health can take a turn for the worse in just six months time. So here I was as a 31 year old when I first did it, super healthy, fit my whole life. Right. And then in just six months of letting myself go, I developed a non-alcoholic fatty liver. Uh, my blood pressure got up to 167 over 113. What? Yeah. My testosterone wow. dropped to the low two hundreds. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And when I went on Dr. Oz, uh, he did, he kind of showed, uh, my kidneys and my liver and where my levels were. And he's like, you have the kidneys of an alcoholic. Like, it, like, and I didn't drink alcohol at the time because I was Mormon. Um, I, I, I do now. I'm not Mormon anymore, but <laughs> I we'll did. get into that. We'll get into Yeah, we'll get into that. So I, I, I didn't drink alcohol, but the amount of soda and sugar that I was consuming did a similar type of damage as if I was an alcoholic. And that was really eye-opening for me too. And I think a lot of people don't really correlate uh, when they eat food. They just look at that food as what is this going to do to my waistline is this going to make me gain weight or lose weight gain fat yeah. we really don't see it as how is this going to affect my overall health because when you're 20 30 your your body's 
pretty remarkable. It can, you know, it can deal with the lots of damage. Um, but the older you get, it starts to catch up to. And when I did the second time around, did my blood work as well. It's crazy how quickly your body can go downhill, but then it's also crazy how quickly for some people, for me, because genetics play a factor, how resilient your body is. So your body can heal itself, can cleanse itself. If you treat it right consistently, even if after years of damage of doing damage to your, your insulin levels and, you know, having, you know, insulin resistance, like all those kinds of things can be reversed over time. It's different for each person, but I mean, the doctor I worked with, like he really educated me and my followers on the importance of doing regular blood work and not just jumping on the scales thinking, oh, I'm a success or a failure just because that number on the scale blood work is, is super important. And so for me, I'm a huge proponent of looking at that more so than jumping on the scale. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The, I would, I can only imagine, cause I think of how good I feel when I eat, you know, a, a whole I mean, I eat basically a whole nutritious diet all the time, but when I'm eat something that is not healthy, how I feel the crash, I feel the afternoon, you know, I don't drink caffeine really anymore. Not very often. And if I do, it's like a cup of coffee on a Sunday now, um, because it's by choice now. Um, I don't drink alcohol anymore. And that all of those things just made such a difference for, uh, you know, for me personally, they made such a difference for recognizing that, we can feel good almost all the time like that. I think when we're used to not feeling good, then feeling good is so foreign and we think it's just normal. And then you start to feel good and you're like, Oh my God, my body is incredible. And you recognize how correlated it is to feeling and, and uh, uh, just how important the things you're saying about so many people change, attempt to change themselves, whatever part of themselves, Mm -hmm. they don't change the under part, the psychology that goes into making the choice. So you can, you know, binarily choose one thing over another, but if we're not choosing the thing that's more healthy, we know that there's something unconscious going on and also biological drives like sugar is immediately more beneficial to the brain. Beneficial is the wrong word, but more rewarding than broccoli. Yeah. Um, and okay. So I'm curious Yeah. after that 2011 first time, 75 pounds, Yeah. you said that was sort of the first, uh, aspect of sort of awakening. And so I'm curious what then, like you go through this, you're like, holy shit, my body's not my identity. Drew is not like Drew is not th- this. Yeah. What else was Drew not? Like you started to, I think you said that you started to observe. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you start to observe? I'm so freaking curious. Well, it kind of leading into religion, which I kind of like already blew that part. I kind of like, you know, told <laughs> you alluded to it. Yeah. <laughs> but basically you laughed, but what happened with that? Yeah. Yeah. So after that first experiment, um, you know, I was married at the time. My, my wife, uh, Lynn, she kind of helped me with the brand and stuff like that. But then I would say a few years into after the fit to fat to fit experience, we, we, we went through a divorce and it had nothing to do with fit to fat to fit. It had everything to do with me kind of looking back and observing myself of why I do the things I do and why I self-sabotage my whole life. So just to give you a little bit of background, Mark, like I grew up in the Mormon religion um, and my perception of that religion, cause I don't have anything against that religion or I want to say religions in general. Um, 
because uh, I do think certain religions work for some people, but the, my perception of my religion growing up was like, I'm not good enough and um, I need to be perfect or uh, otherwise I'm a failure. And sports probably had a, a, a part in that and my family dynamics and the culture I grew up in, you know, I was either an A plus student or a failure. There was no A minus or B plus wow. that was good. That was the kind of my perception of the, the environment that I grew up in. And so it, it developed a lot of self-hate. You know, I, I developed a lot of self-hate around myself. And, um, you know, uh, we talked a little bit before this, you know, in the religion that I grew up in, there's a lot of shaming around like sexual sin and and things like that. And, and you know, for me, obviously being a human being and a teenage <laughs> a teenager at one point with raging hormones and, you know, in the 90s, you know, the, the, the internet started to come out. And so anyways. I remember long- those days. You had to <laughs> yeah. wait for a picture to load. That was hell. It's like, you know, I, am I, anyone who was a teenager when dial up internet came out knows exactly Dude. if they looked at porn, knows exactly. <laughs> and you didn't get videos. You had to get a picture. So true. I mean, uh, take forever to load, like, you know, just waiting for the nipple. Cause it's just not a boob at that thing. Well, it is still a boob, but you know what I mean? Like from an aesthetic, your brain has it processes. Yeah. So uh, funny. But anyways, yeah. So I grew up a lot of shame around who I was and, and it would cost me to self-sabotage because I would try and be perfect. I'd be like, no, if I just discipline myself more, and if I hate myself more, then I won't ever make a mistake. Then I won't ever masturbate. Then I won't ever look at porn. Um, but I eventually would. And then I would just hate myself and the shame and, spiral. Yeah. So I just kind of vicious cycle. I got stuck in. My yeah, whole- you sh- sorry. Sorry about that. No, no, um, go ahead. You shared with me that. Uh, I didn't know this, but I was telling you that I grew up with a lot of Mormons and grew up around a lot, went to university in a city that was packed full of Mormons and worked with a lot of Mormons actually too at the electronic store I worked at and they couldn't work Sundays. I always remember that. But the, the and I'm like, man, come on, you guys got to come here this day. Uh, but what I, I mean, one thing I always appreciated about the Mormon religion is the care and concern for family. The other side though you're on a you're in a safe space to be uh openly critical in a healthy way of religion because when it creates these ideals that are actually a measure no one can measure up to them but you had told me that in the mormon religion the sin of sex sex or sexuality or whatever that might look like is next just one worse than murder which i'm like man i would have been swimming in shame because you know he like I grew up Catholic and there was very much an association of you're going to hell. If you have sex before marriage, that's wrong. Um, I remember watching this video in junior high. I remember exactly where I was sitting because I was like, oh my God, this is so ridiculous. And it had a video where it said, give her a kiss that says, I like you, but I respect you. That's a beautiful message. And then it said, do not get into heavy petting. And I was like, what the fuck is petting? Like, I've never even heard of this term. Like, I've like pet my dog, but that'd be weird (laughs) if that's how you touch someone. Um, And it was really hard for me. Like, I joked about it, but it was hard for me to actually differentiate um, healthy sexuality from shame because they were not differentiated in my upbringing. And until, you know, my mom and dad were not, into that messaging. So I was kind of lucky because my dad could talk to me about these things, but I still went to school and got all these inundated with all these messages. So yeah, I'm, 
I'm curious is as you sort of unraveled or explored your identity as Mormon, how did that reflect in the experience of your, if you're okay with sharing your relationship um, coming to a close as a, yeah. rom- as a romantic relationship? Cause I know you co-parent with a lovely sure. relationship now. And yeah, just to let everyone know, like the, I've, I've done a whole podcast episode on my divorce and why we got divorced. And so like, I'm an open book and I own my story and it's out there publicly for people to listen to on my podcast. Um, so I've, I, I don't mind talking about it at all. Awesome. I, I was kind of, describing a little bit of context about the Mormon religion. And yes, sexual sin is a serious sin. It's a sin next only next to murder and seriousness. That's of like, crazy. Yeah. And so as a kid, you're like, okay, don't look at porn, but it's dude, it's everywhere and everyone's doing it and you want to, cause your hormones are out of control. But anyways, not making excuses. I'm just saying for me, I fell it's into biological. Yeah. Exactly. And so I, I had a lot of shame and, and so I learned to really really well how to wear a mask and pretend like things were okay on the outside. But on the inside, it was this self-hate that just kind of like festered there for years and decades. Um, and then um, I remember, for example, when I was dating my ex-wife, she asked me if I looked at porn uh, when we were engaged, when we were engaged. And I, I told her I did. And it was devastating for her. It was as if I had cheated on her and she almost called off the wedding. And it was very, very shameful because I hated myself for even being attached to that. Cause I, you know, on the outside despised it and look and like was disgusted by it. But on the inside, I was like, I, I enjoy it. I like it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I knew at that moment I, I had to hide things from her because I felt like if she found out I would get divorced. And so I just wow. pretend like I never yeah, looked at yeah. it again. And um, so, like I said, I got really good at hiding things and because I never really dealt with the the underlying issue it eventually, to make a long story short, led to me having an affair uh, where I, in, in 2009, had this affair, totally hid it from her, pretended like it never happened, just suppressed it, suppressed it, suppressed it. Eventually, she found out about it through an email. Shit hit the fan. Um, you know, We didn't get divorced right away. We actually stayed together for five years after that, trying to work through it and figuring it out, but never really getting to the root cause of why I, I was just labeled it as an addict. And like, yeah. you're like this broken person, like what's wrong with you, right? That's the same kind of question. Was it like, porn addiction you were labeled with? Yep. Yeah, that's kind of what, wow. and I went to like an addiction recovery program in the church. So the church sponsors to help porn addicts, you know, because looking back it's at It's crazy now, that the religion has its own program because like, I know a number of men who've had porn addiction, uh, quote unquote, yeah. issues and all of them have been Mormon and one Christian. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting that they have their own program program, because of course I would imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, uh-huh. that, that a program derived from the very constructs and structure that fed the, and created the addiction likely don't deal with their own, them being part of the cause. So you'd be sort of gaslit or like denied your reality. If you're like, well, actually it's because my religion taught me that sexuality is bad. So I'm bad. So whenever I experience sexual desire, I then treat that with arousal. And then I go into a spiral believing I'm bad. And that's actually where it comes from. And they're like, no, that's (laughs) what you think. If you pray enough, God, you can repent. Was that a similar experience? I'm just really curious. 
No, it's very similar. And I wish I had the level of awareness that I have now back then, but back then I was so ashamed. I was like, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to save my marriage and like fix myself. Cause I'm this broken. Wow, yeah. I will go to an addiction recovery, you know, tuck my you know tail between my legs and just go in there and be like, I'm this disgusting human being that looks at porn and go through this program. And, you know, did it fix me? No. I think the only positive thing that came from that was helping to normalize it. Like all these other dudes in this room, we're all normal guys. We're all just average dads, like trying not to look at porn. But other than that, super good guys, like really good people. But because of this one thing, we have this like cross that we have to hold and our wives have to know that we're going to this addiction recovery. And like, because we're, we're, we just, we are broken. And so so fascinating that like it's seen as sin because even the framework of that as opposed to a symptom of and like look it's kind of like social media yeah social media there are teams of behavioral scientists trying to get you addicted to social media and you not any of us not addicted to social media that's actually a massive fucking win (laughs) because i mean it's kind of like pornography like pornography if you have access to it is such hits so many reward centers, you know, and to think it's just a sin as opposed to a combination of factors that lead us to, um, to hide it because the only way we can have a relationship with arousal is to do it in secret, which that again is, does not serve sexual health or relational health. So what a thing to go through, man. Yeah, man. It was very dehumanizing experience, but like I said, the one positive thing that I decided to take from that was normalizing it for me. Yeah, And then from there, you know, um, you know, went down that path of like, okay, trying to fix myself. I, if I stay away from looking at porn, then I'm okay. But if I look at it, then I'm bad. And just a lot of shaming things that, that I had to go through during that period of time. And then, you know, our marriage was like roller coaster of emotions where for a couple of months we'd be fine. And then we'd watch a movie where infidelity would happen and then boom, yeah. trigger, she would cry herself to sleep. Wouldn't talk to me for a few days. I would hate myself and that it would just be a, a cycle that we can never break free from that until I met the most amazing lady um, who became my life coach. Uh, she, is, her name is Catherine Dixon. She does the work by Byron Katie. Uh, once I powerful. met her, the work. Yeah. Once I met with her, that was the first time in my life where someone, even with all the religious stuff that I've been through and all the leaders never once learned how to love myself or thought that I was lovable until I met Catherine and she did the work on me for three hours. I've never cried harder in my life. And it was the the most cleansing experience of my life. And I, I took from that, Oh, I'm still lovable despite having an affair. I'm still lovable despite porn, despite, you know, all the things that all the, the stuff I did, and then from there, this light bulb went off where I'm like, oh, I'm a lovable person. And my relationship with myself started to heal. And then as I started to love myself, I realized, oh, I don't want to look at porn when I'm coming from a place of self-love. I don't need that to bring fulfillment into my life. Not that it's a bad thing. It's not for me. It's not. A, it can be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. Whatever you want to label it as, it will be that for you. For me, I get to decide if it's a good thing or a bad thing. And then from there, it lost its power. It lost its like connection where I, I like, I have to have this. And then that's what I'm saying. Like self-love wow. is so powerful for all kinds of transformations, not just physical transformation, but spiritual transformation as well. 
And then once I started to do the work, like everything started to change. But what I realized was um, as I loved myself, despite loving myself with my ex-wife, you know, I didn't get to choose whether or not she trusted me. I could change and be the most perfect human being in the world, never talk to another female or flirt with anyone for the rest of my life. But the damage had been done. And what I realized was that us staying in this relationship, you know, was just devastating her because anytime I talked to a female or anytime I went on a business trip because of what I did in the past, you know, she suffered emotionally because her mind's thinking about, well, he's lied to me before. What if he's lying to me now? Right. So no matter how much I changed, I couldn't ever prove to her that I had changed um, and so we decided to, to end our marriage and around the same time, the religious thing, we started learning some things about the, the religion we grew up in that weren't told to us. Um, you know, we were just taught that this is just anti, you know, Mormon material and that this stuff didn't happen, but then, you know, the internet comes out and now you can Google things and fact check things. And it's like, wait a second that we, I wasn't told this about the, the founder of the church. And, you know, I wasn't told this story and that story and things started, didn't start to, it started to not make sense like it used to. And so we both kind of had an awakening or falling out of that religion and transition out of our marriage and transition out of the faith around the same time. And so those two big things, which are huge, you know, parts of our identity, right. Your marriage and your religion all of a sudden, you know, we're taken out from underneath, you know, both of us. And from there was a huge self-discovery process of like, okay, who am I without these things of being told who I uh, being told who to be. So um, yeah, that's Mm -hmm. kind of like a little bit of uh, you know, the, the awakening process that I've had. And then even since then till now, because that was back in 2015 when this happened. (laughs) And so even from then till now has been even like more powerful experiences, more dark moments, more rock bottom moments, and then, you know, more self-discovery that's happened since then. But um, yeah, it's been a journey. And here's the thing. I just want to say this really quick, because I know people not be quick to judge. If you, you know, my, my episode 100 of my podcast, I go into all the details of like the affair, what I learned from it, why I did it. And here's the thing that I'll just summarize that part is when you come from a place of self-hate your entire life, you do failure like things you sat self-sabotage in all different kinds of forms. That doesn't mean you go and just have an affair, but that was one thing that manifested itself because it was presented to me in a, in, in a way where I was like, yeah, fuck it. I'm already a failure. Like I've already yeah. done all these other things. I'm already going. Yeah, it matches your belief about yourself and perpetuates the hate. Yes, exactly. And so um, that's that's all I want to say about that is like I I finally realized or came to an awareness of like oh now I'm connecting the dots of all these things that from my childhood to my teenage years of this these the self hate mentality self sabotage just is creates this vicious cycle of continuing to do hurtful things, not just to myself, but to other people. And this is where it, and it led me to a rock bottom moment. And from there, I was like, here I am a dad of two girls. I could stay stuck here and blame the system, blame the religion, blame my parents, blame God, blame whoever for all the troubles uh, uh, that I'm in. Or do I want to become the best version of myself to become the best dad for my daughters so that I don't pass on this generational trauma, the same things I had to go through. You know, if I don't do that, then I'm going to unconsciously pass this on to them. And so that's where I was like, okay, I am willing to do this work. And that's why, you know, doing the work by Byron Katie, started listening to books, started meditating, started 
um, doing positive affirmations and those kinds of things. That's why I plug those into my, 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 my training programs for people, because it had such a powerful impact on me to transform my mind about myself. And I feel like that's kind of my, how I pay it forward is by helping people with those things that helped me. Wow. What a journey to think of in 20, 2009 to 2015, you're sort of in this cycle of melting, you know, like everything is, you're trying to rebuild it, but it can't be built upon because you know, there's still, there's, I think unconsciously, we don't realize that there's foundational pieces that aren't secure. They can't hold what we're trying to build because we haven't actually, uh, we're trying to build on something that's not solid or not based on reality, which is interesting that eventually uh, truth comes out that destabilizes then your framework of your spiritual belief structure, which probably somatically you felt, you know, like in your body, you felt like if you have to hate yourself to be part of a religion, then the religion isn't serving you, you know? And I think of the cycle that you had with pornography, which I identify so much with your life and in your experience, not the same, but, yeah. but similar cycles of, well, if, if I'm not lovable anyways, then what's the point in actually even choosing people who can love me choosing people who can show up because if they do, they're probably just going to betray me and I'll probably just betray myself, you know, instead of learning what you're inviting us to explore, which is to turn towards these things. And, and gosh, you know, I always think when some of the hardest things, and I, I want to hear from you about this is, is some of the hardest things is to let the old systems that don't work die. Yeah. And I'm curious, what is the greatest lesson that you learned amongst all the sort of what, what might've at the time looked like rubble, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and so much uncertainty because you get divorced and all of a sudden you're, you're not in a religion anymore. You're no longer a bad, you know, a bad person. Yeah. Well, what was available then? Like what was being in that uncertainty? Like, and how did you cope with that? And uh, what was the greatest thing you learned? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, for me, it was very, very uncomfortable to be in that spot of like, okay, I'm, I'm at my most lowest point in my life. Um, you know, uh, what do I want? What, what? And that's the other thing is I had a question. Well, well, if my religion isn't true that I believed was 100% true my entire life, what is true? And I had to find my own truth from there. And I questioned everything. And so for me, it led me down this path of being open to new methods that I just wasn't, uh, you know, never was open to because I was like, no, I only need my scriptures. I only need prayer. Like this little bubble right here has all the answers. But then I was like, oh, outside this bubble is therapy and life coaching and meditation and and positive affirmations, things that I would think were weird. Like, dude, only weird people do that, right? And, <laughs> and then I started doing it. And uh, to be honest with you, like the first time I said positive affirmations to myself, Mark was like, it was a really powerful experience. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional, but like, it was really, really cool because I've never really heard the words, you know, I'm proud of you or like, mm. you're worthy of love. Like no one's ever really said that to me. So when I started saying those things to myself, I guess the biggest lesson I've learned from this whole thing is like the thing that's been missing my whole life is me giving myself that love Mm -hmm. instead of looking for it from other people, from God, from my parents, from like my spouse, you know, who we got a divorce. So this is what I tell people, like we're looking for other people to fill that void for us. When in reality, we have the power to give that to ourselves. 
And I think that's the biggest mistake people make is like, we, we want it from other people thinking I need someone to complete me. I need, you know, God to complete me. I need this person to complete me when in reality we have the power to do that for ourselves. And that's where everything changes. If you can learn how to show up for yourself and truly love yourself and fill that void, not from anything on the outside, but everything from within your whole life changes. And I feel like that's kind of, uh, that was the biggest mm-hmm. lesson I learned back then. And even fast forward to today, like I've been through some hard things just this past year where I've had to be reminded to do that again. I've had to be reminded of that because not just like you do it once and then it's fixed. Like, oh, yep, you loved yourself and now you don't have to do it anymore. It's like working out. It's like you can't just go to the gym and work out for a month and be like, okay, now you're fit. You don't need to work out anymore. And so I feel like God, the universe, whatever reminded me of this lesson again just this past year of learning how to become the hero of my own story and show up for myself because i even though i was doing like the things to check off the list i was meditating i was journaling i was gratitude list all the things that helped me from that first dark phase and that rock bottom moment i was kind of just going through the motions and i wasn't really um yeah, I don't think I was really present doing it uh, recently. And so I felt like I had to learn another really hard lesson of like, no, you really need to show up for yourself. You really need to love yourself instead of seeking it from, you know, a loved one, a partner. No, I'm not, I'm not saying I don't try to find that. I'm definitely am trying to find the love of my life. Um, but uh, I think that's the biggest lesson is truly learning how to show up for yourself. And I think that's for me, like, uh, the lesson that I want to get across to other people, men, especially, I think a lot of men, you know, women too, yeah. but men who have been in my shoes, I don't know if there's a lot of men listening to this, but if they've been where I've been, where they were a porn addict or they've cheated and they self-sabotage and they can't get stuck out of that, there are ways to learn how to show up for yourself. And I know it's hard because the society we live in is like, just man up and be a man and don't cry. And like, you know, um, don't be emotional. And, I feel like for me, I believed that my whole life and then it broke me. And now I'm going to try this other method of self-love and um, yeah, it's been so healing. Hmm. I mean, all of what you said is so beautiful, such a good reminder. Cause as um, you know, I, I thought my sensitivity was a problem Yeah. and then I realized it's a superpower, Yeah. you know, and I, uh, and that it's not correlated to mask. They're not even in the same area, masculinity and emotionality. They're just not the same full stop, you know? And I think our ability, I really believe emotion is sort of the currency of the future, like uh, the ability to be in it and explore it and to heal. Like when you said, you know, I had this choice to look up my family tree and decide, am I going to pass these things down? I mean, that is sometimes the level of uh, responsibility that we need to motivate ourselves to just pause and God, yeah. Byron Katie's, the work is so powerful. Yeah. Drew, um, this has been such a beautiful conversation and I've really appreciated your vulnerability and your openness. And, um, you know, I, I want to also affirm that, you know, I'm pretty clear in the way I communicate that when there is infidelity in a circumstance other than like super chronic cheating narcissists, yeah. we'll always put them in another camp because mm-hmm. that's a lot of dysfunction there that needs its own podcast episode. Yeah. Uh, but like when like people who cheat are not the villains, it's a way of relating. And um, I appreciate you giving context to it because uh, it allows, I think more of the humanness, although we might've been, I think often it's because we've been, 
angry at the hands of betrayal uh, that we can't see the humanness in the behavior because it feels very destructive, yeah. um, but it's purposely destructive because the circumstances of our lives can't be held together anymore for whatever reason. And I think it's fascinating that sometimes cheating is the actual best way we know to leave things because actually leaving them consciously, we get exiled from our community anyway. So you might as well go out burning, you know, and that's a sad truth, but you've really demonstrated to us that you can learn from all of these things. And um, man, thank you for telling your story and, and, and where could people find you more of you? Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me on uh, fit to fat to fit.com. So fit number two, fat number two fit is my website. And then it's all my social media handles. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, like all the, all the ones, all the social media platforms at fit to fat to fit. Um, but I really appreciate you having me on and um, yeah, hopefully people listening got, got some value out of this. So thank you. hundred percent. I know, I know they will. Um, thanks a lot thanks brother thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode if this episode resonated with you one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more leave a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to it or share the episode with your community on instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out this helps get it into more people's ears and i'm so grateful for your support always Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.